All right, I'm going to make a statement this morning, and you tell me what's wrong with it, and give me some verses, okay? Here's the statement. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So you're justified by works and not by faith alone. What's wrong with that? Everything, right? Okay. Well, well, we'll get there. Yeah. But give me a verse. I mean, what, what's... Uh... Yeah, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is one. I found one that is in direct opposition. Galatians 2, 16. Here's what that says. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith uh, in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So in one verse, it says three times, it is not by works, it is by faith. So that's one verse with three things. So how can anyone say a person is justified by works and not by faith alone? Right? That goes against the very core of the gospel. Now, somebody turn to James 2.24. I think Matt was already there. <laughs> and somebody with a ESV or NASB, read that verse. James 2.24. Read it out loud for us. Uh-oh. All right. You see that a man or a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So my statement was a quote of Scripture. Right? James wrote that. Uh oh. So that's what we're going to deal with this morning. I'll tell you a little story about how this study this morning came about. Now, I came to understand and embrace Reformed theology, which wasn't easy for me, and eventually came to this church about 10 years ago. After downloading and listening to about 250 expository verse by verse sermons through the book of Romans. And it was worldview crushing and life changing. And so we hunted down and we found Faith Community Church. And when we started, the adult Bible study at the time was in Romans. Yeah. And Pastor Shane has recently finished going through Romans. And in my small group, I'm teaching through Romans, right. So <laughs> I say all that to say this, right? I love the book of Romans. And justification by faith alone is a hill to die on. Right? That is a hill to die on. Because we have no other hope. Right? It is either by faith alone or we go to hell, justly and rightly so. And so right, I'm not and we're not budging off of that hill. Right, and Lord keep us on that hill. Right. So as I'm reading through James in my yearly Bible reading plan, I hit this section 
and I hit this sentence, and it stops me in my tracks. And I, I, I caused, I mean, it's right there in my inspired, God-breathed, inerrant Word of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Right? You can't say that, James. You can't say that. I don't know what you're trying to say, but you can't say that. But there it is. So let's be honest, right? In light of verses like Galatians 2.16 that we looked at, I heard somebody mention Ephesians 2.8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Right? Or the very clear Romans 4.5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. So, if James 2.24 is a contradiction, then we just need to shut our Bibles and leave them here, turn out the lights and go home. Right? Because there's a, the gospel is a contradiction at its core, if it's truly a contradiction. And we don't know what to trust and what not to trust anymore. Right? <laughs> So we need to work through it. And on the surface, at least, we could have a problem here. And so I had to work through it when I hit this section of Scripture again. And this lesson was born. <laughs> and that's what we're going to do this morning. So before we dive into this James uh, section here in, in chapter 2, there's a principle here that we all need to remember. And this will help us in every time we run across something like this. Because many years ago, I used to have my list of the whosoever verses, right? And, and I was sure those verses disproved this Calvinism thing. I didn't know what all it meant, and I knew they, they had some verses, but my verses disproved their verses. Anybody else ever been there? But one day, somebody told me a principle that was just so obvious, and it just hit me right in the face. And the principle was this. The Bible does not argue with itself. God is not schizophrenic. And the Spirit inspired all the words, and He was not confused over the truth. So the Bible doesn't argue with itself. Now, that's so obvious. But I was being inconsistent in my thinking by thinking that the Bible argued with itself, that this verse disproved that verse. That's not the principle at all, right? So if we're having issues with any apparent contradictions, then the problem is not God's revelation to us, it's us. And that's what I had to come to grips with. It's our limited understanding at the time. And so if we, if we have an apparent contradiction in our minds from verses in Scripture, we need to dig and study until we can fully accept both. Because the answer's there. We just have to dig and study until we can accept all that the Scriptures teach. If we're pitting one verse against another as if one disproves another, well, that can't happen, and the problem is us. 
So that was a, a, a principle that really helped me. So let's dig more into James and figure out this apparent contradiction here with James 2.24. Now, as usual, context is paramount. So let's back up and see what's going on here. James is sometimes referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament because it's about practical, everyday living. If If you skim the book to this point, He's talked about the testing of our faith through enduring trials. He's talked about being quick to hear and slow to speak. Just good old practical everyday um, truth for our lives. Uh, He's talked about being not just a hearer, but a doer of the word. And he's told us to watch out for the sin of partiality. I mean, he's just going through this laundry list of practical everyday living topics. And now he starts in chapter 2, verse 14, with a new topic. So that, that's where we'll begin. James two fourteen. Now another thing I learned a while back that helped me is the Bible argues. Now I just said the Bible does not argue with itself. Right? And that's true. But it argues with its reader. And what do I mean by that? I don't mean in a bickering kind of way, arguing, right? But it often makes a thesis statement and then states logical arguments, right? And reasons for the statement that it just made. I mean, most of the book of Romans is this way. It's uh, some kind of doctrinal teaching or thesis statement and then argument after argument supporting that statement. And sometimes it'll present arguments for entire chapters or multiple chapters. I mean, Romans 9 through 11 is one big argument that the Word of God has not failed. And so, I mean, that's another principle that will help us here. Because I think that's what's going on here with James, in that he makes a a thesis statement in the form of a question. And then it helps us to realize that the Bible argues and look for statements followed by argument chains that are supporting the statement that was made previously. So if you skim this section of uh, verses 14 to 26 in James chapter 2, it looks like verse 14 is his thesis statement, followed by four examples as arguments, and then followed by a conclusion. Because I pulled a trick on you a minute ago when I just yanked that sentence out and threw it out there and said, tell me what's wrong with it, right? It's a common trick. It's the same trick I pulled on myself when I was reading through this section at home one day. I tore that sentence right out of the middle of an argument and and made it stand alone apart from its context, and it stopped me in my tracks. I didn't have in my mind at the time what James was saying and trying to argue for. So as I read that passage at the time, I I couldn't reconcile it in my mind off the top of my head. And so I probably could have made up something superficial and moved on, but I didn't have a ready and satisfying answer to what does that sentence mean? Because you can't say that, James. You cannot say that. But there it is. You ever have those kind of moments? This is why I'm one and a half years into my yearly Bible reading plan. <laughs> I have to 
I run into stuff like this and I have to stop and dig into it until you get a satisfactory answer to what's going on here. Why is this sentence in verse 24 okay? It's in God's inerrant, inspired word. So let's dig in. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So I think that's his uh, thesis statement here that he's going to, uh, to try and, and work on with us. So let's look at it in detail and see if we can pull out what he's really after here. So let me reread verse 14 with a different emphasis. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? That's a clue. I think that's our hint. And I hope you'll agree with me that as we go through this, that that bears itself out. Someone who just says they have faith. That's important. And he goes on, someone says he has faith, but does not have works. So his thesis here is, what good is merely spoken faith? You know, the... Well, why, yes, I believe in Jesus. Or the, of course, I'm a Christian. I was born in America. I'm in the South. <laughs> Maybe it's that type, that, and it really makes no difference in you. And that's key. We've got to see what James is really addressing when he's talking about faith. And it's almost like, as you read through this, it's like James is using air quotes around the word faith. If someone says he has faith without works. So he's talking about a particular kind of faith. And I think that's his thesis. What good is this particular kind of faith that has no works, but it's just words. And it makes no real difference in one's life. So you call yourself a Christian, but your life isn't governed by the Scriptures. And I think the rest of this section will bear out that that, this is what he's after. This is his thesis that he's going to argue for. So then he asks, can that faith save him? So I think that's another key, and I'm glad it's here, because he does not say the works do the saving. He says, can that faith save him? He asks, so he's asking in essence, can that faith, that kind of faith, save him? So he's not implying in his statement here that the works do the saving. So now we're still working toward verse 24, and we still have that to deal with. All right, we haven't forgotten that, but, but I'm glad that statement is in here. So James has given us his, his thesis, and now he moves on to argument number one, which is his first example in verses 15 and 16. It says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So this question is another big clue 
Because it's the same question. If you move the what good is that, that's at the end of verse 16 to the start of verse 15, it parallels his thesis statement exactly. What good is it if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you just says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled? The answer is, of course, no good at all. So this is example number one of a merely spoken faith. He compares it to seeing a destitute brother naked and hungry and merely saying, be warmed and be filled. It does nothing, right? And the words are empty. And that's important because I think James has just given us an example of what he means here when he uses the word faith in this context. So before we accuse James of going off the rails, we need to let the author tell us what he means when he's making an argument, because that is the meaning. Right? The question is never, what does this mean to me? The question is always, what did this mean to the author and his audience? Right? That's the meaning. We need to know what the scripture means if I never existed. Right? It's not what does it mean to me. Well, what does it mean if I never existed? That's the meaning. Right? So our goal in understanding the real meaning of scripture is to think the author's thoughts after him. And James is telling us he's talking about an empty words kind of faith here. As he compares it to this, yeah, you're hungry, uh, be filled. Just words. So verse 17 begins with, so also, so he's comparing this against his, uh, his, his point here. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so he gives us a category here of what he's talking about. Dead faith. A faith of empty words. Words with no reality. Yeah. As they say, profession without possession. False faith. So we must keep that in mind when confronted with a sentence like verse 24. So in verse 18, he says, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now this is important as well, because I think it tells us more about what James is talking about. What new word is repeated here? Show. Show, right? Yeah. So he issues a challenge that's basically, okay, there's this category of dead faith. So how does a real living faith show itself? So hang on to that. We're going to come back to it, and it's going to be very important. So now we're going to move on to argument number two, which is in verse 19. And he says, 
you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So this is his second argument from a second example here. And so this same kind of faith that James is talking about, this empty words kind of faith, he says is like the faith, in air quotes again, of the demons. Right? They also have a dead faith, an intellectual assent to some facts. You ever sit down and read the statements of the demons um, that Jesus encountered? What they said to him? They are fantastically orthodox statements. You ever think about that? They declare he is the Son of God. That he is God in the flesh. They know their eschatology. They believe in his return. Right? They, know, they know their future. And think about this. They even obey him immediately when commanded. Hmm. James says they too actually believe in God and they tremble before Him. They shudder. So why aren't they saved? They state orthodox facts. They have an intellectual assent to them. But it's empty words. Because they have no change. No regeneration. No repentance. No trust. No love for God. Right? All of those are gifts from Him. So they know much more of God than us. And they hate Him. So it's useless words. I think that's what James is talking about. And it's, it's good to ask ourselves, what kind of faith do we possess? And how does it differ from that of the demons? Hopefully some of those things we just read about are true of us, that we are regenerated and we do have repentance and we do have love for God and trust in Him. All right, moving on to verse 20, he sets up his next argument or example. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Well, there's that word show again. Keep that in mind. And it sounds like he's getting a little testy here, doesn't it? Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So I think he is getting a little testy here because this, this false faith that he's addressing is apparently a problem at the time I think as it is today, and the stakes are so high. Right? I mean, we're talking about eternity here. And so the stakes are so high. And so you can understand getting passionate about confronting people that may have this empty, dead faith for their own sake. For their own sake. Heaven or hell for eternity is at stake. 
And so he's going to move on to argument number three, which is Abraham. So in verse 21, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Huh. Well, this one can trip us up. All right, because he starts out saying Abraham was justified by works when he offered up Isaac. Ouch. So we got to deal with this. Now at this point, I pulled out my Strong's Dictionary. And I wanted to go look up the, the Greek word here for justified. Because I was hoping that this would be a different Greek word than everywhere else in the New Testament where it's talking about justified by faith. Nope. Nope, same word. I was hoping it'd be different. Same word. So now what do we do? Well, you keep reading, which is always good advice, right? Keep reading. So verse 22 says, you see that faith was active along with His works. And faith was completed by His works. And the Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Okay, so he gets to the counterpoint. That was probably in all of our minds when we first read... uh, this verse here, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Because that's the moment of his justification before God. That's when he was declared right and just. When he believed. Okay. And in verse 22, he says, Faith was active along with and faith was completed So he is stating that the faith in question was already existing and was now working. And that's key. So I think it's fairly simple here. Abraham was justified when he believed and trusted in God's promise in Genesis 15. And then James says the event later from Genesis 22 with Isaac on the altar was just an external evidence then of the reality of the faith he had back here. So it was... So Isaac and the altar incident was a work that was the result of the already existing and real faith. Okay, in other words, this example number three is a counterexample to his first two. This example is that Abraham's faith was not just words. It was a reality. Now I'm going to skip verse 24 for a moment and come back to it because that's the one we really got to work through. And James moves on to example number four, which is Rahab. In verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works, 
when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So you're probably all familiar with the story here. The spies come in. They're spying out the land. Um, Rahab hides them on the roof and uh, helps them get away. And so he he starts this verse in verse 25 with, And in the same way... So this is going to be another counterexample. I've learned to depend on these connector words and these verses here. They are not throwaway, and they tell us a lot. And they really help us find and follow these argument chains. So the words of Rahab's faith are expressed in Joshua 2, 9 through 11, where she expresses her belief and trust in the one true God. In fact, as an aside, I I remember reading through this one time and it hitting me that because if if you read what she says, she says, we heard what God did to the Egyptians at the Red Sea and we have been quaking in our boots ever since. But the Israelites have been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years afraid of them. And when they get there, when the spies finally get there... Uh, she says, look, we've been, we know your God is the real God. Your God is the God of heaven and earth. And we have been afraid ever since. It's just, uh, just amazing. But anyway, she's expressed her faith and her belief and trust in the one true God. And so we see that this is another example of it not being a faith of mere words, because that faith changed her. And she acted upon it by hiding the spies and helping them escape. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but even though she knew it came at the cost of her city, and everyone, you know, everyone she knew and grown up with, but she helped these spies even though she knew it came at the cost of her city because her faith was real and she acted upon it. So a quick recap here. So James makes his thesis. What good is it if somebody merely says they have faith? And then he gives us two examples of false dead faith. And then he gives us two examples of a real, living, saving faith. And so he's contrasting them. And the difference is the real saving faith has works that show it. So that's what he's been working on with us here. And so he concludes this section uh, with a conclusion of his thesis in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So a thesis, two examples against, two examples for, and a conclusion. And then he's off to talking about taming the tongue. So let's, uh, let's start to put a bow on this and get to our verse 24 here. All right, there's still something we need to talk about. 
And then we need to see if James and Paul are friends or foes. So James says rather plainly in verse 24 that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That statement is still there. And in verse 21, he says, Abraham, our father, was justified by works. And in verse 25, he says, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works. So we've still got to deal with this. What does he mean by those statements? I said we'd come back to verse 18 because I think it holds the key here. We saw there where this idea of faith showing itself right, was in three places. James issues a challenge that is basically, there is such a category as dead faith. And so how does a real living faith show itself? So I believe this is what he's talking about when he uses the word justified here. He's not talking about justification before God, being forgiven of sins and declared righteous by God based on the work of Christ alone. This is about justification before men. How do we know that our faith is real? So I think verse 18 sort of tells us James is from Missouri. Show me. Show me. How does a real faith justify its existence as real? I think that was his whole point of his last two examples, right? Abraham and Rahab, they justified their faith as real. So I think he's using justification here in a different sense, just like he's using faith in a different sense. So if you look up the meanings of the Greek word used for justify, which I'm not going to try to pronounce... There is a second meaning of to show, to exhibit, or events one to be righteous, such as he is and wishes himself to be considered. And I think that is the sense in which he's using the word justify here. So are Paul and James friends or foes? Well, they're friends, absolutely. Because Paul, when he's talking about justification by faith alone, he's talking about the justification of a filthy sinner before a holy God and how that's accomplished. How can a holy, righteous, and absolutely just God ever declare someone like me righteous? How can God be just and the justifier of someone like me? That's a huge issue, and Paul spills much ink answering it, and the answer is the gospel, right? The answer is the cross of Christ. That's why it's Jesus Christ and His cross. It's why it's the only way, and it's why the gospel is so exclusive. James, on the other hand, is talking about justification of our faith, that showing of it, before men, and how it shows or exhibits itself as the real thing. So that's what all of his arguments and examples have been about. Two that do, 
and two that don't. Those, that's, that was his argument along the way. So Paul is talking about root, and James is talking about fruit. Paul is teaching about true salvation through true faith, and James is warning against false faith. And there's way too much at stake not to. So this is not in conflict with Paul as he's defending these bedrock doctrines of salvation by faith alone apart from works because he's speaking of a real and saving faith. There is a content and a quality to saving faith. And Paul is speaking about that kind of faith. James is talking about those without it, but who say they have it. So James is going after some of the same distortions of Paul's teaching that Paul also went after. People who may say, yeah, I'm a Christian. But then they go in there and say, oh, it's by faith alone? Then let's sin like crazy so that grace may abound. Antinomians or... So both address it, but James says that kind of faith is dead and useless and empty words. So let's, let's talk about these works that justify a real or a false faith through an example I think is common today. Now in our culture, this happens all the time. Because someone goes to a church service or a retreat or a youth camp or or whatever else and has some kind of religious experience. They may even feel a tinge of guilt. They may raise their hand while every eye is closed. They may go and repeat a prayer and then be whisked off to a back room to sign a card They are welcomed into the family of God, promised they are now saved, and have put a stake in the ground, and they need never doubt. They may even be baptized and presented to the church as a member all in one day. And I know, because I've been involved in this from both sides. So they now say they are a Christian and a person of faith. And God, through His astounding grace, will use this to to bring some to Himself. There are probably many of us here that have come to a true and saving faith through this kind of methodology. But for many, many, a week or a month later, and they are nowhere to be found. And we've seen this. Decades later, they're still nowhere to be found. Why? Well, if God even still crosses their mind, their trust, and their faith, in their quotes, is really just words. And it's really in their past decision to walk that aisle or in that 30-second prayer that they repeated that day. And they think that is what saved them. And that's what their trust is really in. But Sunday after Sunday, they have something else to do other than worship the Lord 
and serve His people. But the true reason you've not seen them in a worship service in all that time is this. They don't love Christ and have no desire to worship Him with His saints. Their faith is empty words. Because why would they get out of bed on their day off and go sit with a bunch of strangers and listen to some guy talk about a 2,000-year-old book that rarely makes them feel good about themselves? So they don't love God or want to know more of Him from His Word or want to worship Him for His grace and mercy that they've never really seen they so desperately need. And they've never felt the crushing weight of their sin before a holy God and their absolutely desperate need, not only for forgiveness, but for a perfect righteousness that they know they can't achieve. Therefore, Christ is not really precious to them. All right, you've got to be crushed by the weight of your sin before God and then be amazed by the grace and mercy displayed through the cross of Christ for Christ to really be precious. You know, to these kind of folks that I think James is talking about, Christ is something they took care of one day a while back. I checked the box back, back, back there 10, 20 years ago, whatever. And they don't live with a sense of their desperate daily need of Him. So there may have been words of faith, but there's no regeneration, no new heart, no love for God, no desperate need of Him, no worship that springs from being simply overwhelmed by God's grace and mercy to them. And so we too would say that their faith is dead. We too would say it's not been justified to us as real by any works that a regenerate person would have. And this is James' warning. And it is not a contradiction to anything in Paul's doctrine. James is warning us here about a false faith of empty words. So today we can leave the lights on, we can take our Bibles, and we can go to worship this morning. Because by backing up and letting James tell us what he means um, by verse 24, we can accept it now as fully true and by no means a contradiction. A person with true saving faith has that pre-existent faith justified to us as real because of the works it will show as evidence of that real faith. So in that sense, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Not before God. He's not justified before God by His works because God already knows. But before ourselves and others. 
It justifies our faith is real. And so we know that. And we can say amen to verse 24. We know there is such a thing as false faith. And we know that there is a category of people who claim Christ, but one day apostatize and walk away. And they have not lost their salvation. They prove that they had this empty faith that James is warning of. So James is warning his readers because, as we said, so much is at stake. So we need to heed his warning and see if our faith is beyond mere words and beyond just assent to some historical facts. We need to, as Paul said, examine ourselves, see if we're in the faith, and see if our faith is beyond that of the demons that James warned us of here. All right, let's... uh, Let's close in a word of prayer.